Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello, everybody. This is Dr. Simon, and the show, uh, as is always, uh, is uh, the stories we live by. And today I have uh, two special guests. Um, one is a very good friend of mine, Dr. Lewis Wynn. Uh, who's been in independent practice for more than 20 years. Before that, he was the clinical director at New Mexico State Hospital. That must have been a trip and a half, Lou. Uh, a Keep going, Larry. A surveyor of psychiatric and substance abuse facilities for the Joint Commission on Accreditation and Healthcare Organizations and an adjunct associate professor at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. Uh, uh, he and I were co-editors of the journal Ethical Human Psychology and Psychiatry. And in a prior existence, he was an experimental psychologist at the U.S. Air Force's Primate Laboratory. And with him is Tracy Alexis, who is currently the director of the development director of development at Albuquerque's largest facility for the homeless. And I imagine Tracy, that's growing by the day, given yep. the economy. Yes, it is. She has a bachelor's and master's degree in psychology and is currently completing her Ph.D. dissertation in the specialty of organizational development under the guidance of Lewis Wynn. Her specialty is triangulation in organizations. So welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. uh, It's good to talk with you again, Lou. Unfortunately, we do not see each other like I would like. uh, You know, it's almost 3,000 miles separates us. And the time is racing by, I don't have to tell you. Mm-hmm. So, you wanted to talk about intellectual dishonesty in psychology, and if you saw the title I added, and I added, and everywhere else, because yeah. I'll get to that, I guess. But tell me, what, what, what is going on that you feel that psychology is dishonest? And uh, you can you tell us. Let, it, let us start with uh, that we are now some 30 or 40 years after the Community Mental Health Centers Act, which gave us the first real publicity in the marketplace. Uh, and yet, so much time has gone by, and people still do not know the difference between psychology and psychiatry. Okay. I see that every day, and I, I guess I should say, Larry, uh, so that people will sort of know where I'm coming from, that most of my time in my practice these days is involved in examining people for disability. Um, And so I see a lot of people, and I see them briefly. Uh, What I do with each person is I get a complete history, and I do what we call a mental status exam, uh, and I write a report. And I I do between five and 600 of these a year. So I've got a fair look at what a lot of psychologists uh, in my position don't have, which is a wide variety of people. You know, you remember the old term Yavis, Larry, Y-A-V-I-S? Verbal, oh, yeah, young, adult, verbal, intelligent, and uh, what was successful. that? Successful. Successful, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I think the A was young, attractive. I think young, attractive, verbal, intelligent, successful. Those are the people that make up most clinical practices. Uh, uh, well, I, I, maybe I should modify that immediately by saying most psychologists um, who do work in the real world work with children. There are very few of us now, I think, as a, as a percentage of the, of the membership of APA who actually work with adults out in the community. Most of them work with children. Uh, and so our, I think we wear blinders. Um, I think we uh, psychologists, unlike lawyers, unlike physicians, unlike engineers, even unlike teachers, when we get our doctoral degrees, we, most of us don't go out into the community and work. We go back in, onto the campus and teach other people to get PhDs. And that has made us very, very narrow-minded and short-sighted. Okay, having said that, um, I think people don't know the difference between psychology and psychiatry for a very simple reason. I would contend, to take an extreme position, 
uh, th there is no difference, Larry. The psychologists and psychiatrists uh, do pretty much the same things. And the, the last nail in the coffin of clinical psychology was the granting of prescription privileges to us so that now that we don't have to pretend uh, like the psychiatrists do, that they know how to do psychotherapy. They used to, but they don't anymore. They don't need to. They just, they just push pills. Well, they well, don't call themselves psychiatrists anymore, Lou. What do they call them? They call themselves psychopharmacologists. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, that's what they call themselves. I mean, that's exactly. Psychiatry is dead. It's psychopharmacology, and I think one of the reasons they moved in that direction, it started in 1990 with the decade of the brain, mm -hmm. was that we had taken the field away from them. And now they've taken the field back. Well, yeah, well, they, the... The, the pushing of, of medication, of course, is, as you said earlier, is, is outside, outside uh, psychiatry and psychology. It involves all kinds of fields where we take a medical look. In fact, uh, Tom Sass uh, wrote a book called The Medicalization of Everyday Life. Right. And so it, it, it cuts uh, much wider than psychiatry and psychology. Besides, it's a lot more profitable. Yeah, and, and it sees... It sees uh, the human being as a chemical machine. That's what we are. We're chemical machines, and, and we are to be adjusted. According to, according to the model that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. 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 You and I don't accept the idea that we're a chemical machine. That's correct, but, but most other psychologists, particularly clinical psychologists, now do that. Yes. I would argue that they do that. And yeah. I'll give you another, uh, another thing. It involves not only the positive, that is to say, and I use put the word positive in quotes, the, the acceptance of, of that notion uh, that uh, people's existential issues can be solved by chemistry, but it also involves a, a negation of what I think is truly important, and here's where I come nose to nose with the American ethos, which is that we uh, downplay, in fact, indeed, we ignore history. Now, we, we know that Americans hate history. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, don't, uh, we, we hate it in the aggregate and we hate it in individuals. We don't want to know about what's happened to a person in the past because as soon as we do, we're come, we come face to face with what the issues are. Again, the trauma, the neglect, the abandonment by the parents and on and on. But if we don't ask them for a history, we don't have to deal with that. We simply look at what they're doing, call it a name. Uh, th this is the decade of bipolar disorder and I will tell you, Larry, that, that of all all of the people that I see uh, that, that, uh, that come to me to get examined for disability, almost all of them have psychological issues, and almost all of them are labeled bipolar. Bipolar, if it were, if it were something like uh, cancer or heart disease or, or, or typhus or pneumonia, it would be a national calamity. Uh, it would be seen as a pandemic. Um, but... It's bipolar, and that's the, that's the disease du jour, the mental illness du jour, as it were. And the other one is post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes. Those are their catch-all. Well, you see, you know, I, when I was thinking about this show, Lou, uh, I think, I don't know if I'm getting more cynical in my old age uh, than, than I was. You're more cynical than when I met you 10 years ago. How's that? Will that do for you? Oh, good. Or right. uh, more realistic. You see, I see all of this, you know, the last book I wrote was about the politics of human, uh, of human experience, mm -hmm. uh, um, psychotherapy. Uh, we, we divorce, and I think you and I do that too, when we talk about patients, we talk about uh, private practice and the field of psychology. Everything's embedded, I think, with everything else. And you can't change, take away the idea of politics and uh, economics, for example, from uh, anything else in human existential experience. So if you look at a human being as embedded in the world, uh, you and I and Tracy and anybody we see can be defined in any way we want, but simultaneously we're all citizens. Larry, a better, a better a source is, is not your last book, but your last article that you published in EHPP, which was on uh, abnormal psychology textbooks. Remember yes, that one? Yes. I remember, sure. I have to remember that. Uh, I don't think uh, anybody read it except you. I, did. I read it. Uh, I know you I, did. <laughs> but, but you see, but, that's part of the issue. Um, the, the, Larry, the, your, your article points out very well that, that, that those textbooks 
might just as well be, be psychiatry textbooks as psychology textbooks. They're That's organized right. along DSM-4, right. talk about the diagnoses, medications. Um, there it is. Uh, and, but, but you see, it's part of the larger issue that we have a society organized around certain myths. Right? And um, one of the big myths that societies organize is, is formal religion. Okay? Yeah. Um, you want to talk about dishonesty, look at religion. I mean, religion to me is essentially a dishonest act that people participate in. Um, I, again, this is my personal view. Uh, here we are in, in 2009. Uh, and people still believe that there's a, a man-god in heaven who's looking down, who reads people's thoughts, who makes things right, makes things wrong. Um, look at the depth of that. And that's interacted with politics. I don't have to show, tell you what's been happening in the last 10 years, what we went through with the, with the, with the Bush administration. I'm not sure we're out of it. I mean, you listen to these, these hypocrites who, who are saying God loves them, and they're screwing their girlfriends, and they're... These are the power brokers. These are the power brokers. So you have religion, and then you have medicine. I think medicine is the big, the second major myth. Now, it, all of these things contain things that I think are true. I think that, you know, from my point of view, from your point of view, some of them even contain ideas that I think are moral, because I think that's one of the central issues we're talking about. It's that so much of what psychiatry is, is immoral and psychology. But it's embedded with the politics and the economics of our culture. But Larry, and, let me let me say that. Um, yeah. I have somebody else. Somebody else wants it's the calling in. So can uh, I uh, put them on? We'll see who they are. Uh, yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Hold on. Hello. Hi, gentlemen. Yes. Uh, my name is Tony in Ohio. I just wanted to uh, ask a brief question. I was listening into the discussion, and you guys sure. were talking talking about some of the uh, the outlying factors that go into to uh, somebody's, uh, I guess, psychological well-being, I guess is what you're getting at, and, and how being a citizen and uh, economic uh, factors and social factors can all come, come into play, and those ever-changing factors can kind of weigh in a person's uh, psychological state. I guess my, well, question, is, my, my question, I guess, is um, I, I wonder if, um, since we're kind of like over-medicating the people, I guess we all kind of agree on that, um, is this like an, a knee-jerk reaction, an attempt uh, perhaps to kind of uh, renormalize, so to speak, with quotation marks around that word, because we all know normal is a subjective term. Well, um, uh, try to renormalize as life continues to kind of get crappier and crappier, to use, you know, uh, yes. layman's language. Because well, let me tell you what a friend of mine once said, um, a very strange and interesting man, uh, who said to me, American psychiatry and medicine has as its goal turning all of us into happy morons. Wow. And if I read the newspapers and I watch television, watch what's on television, I think we're very close to being happy morons. Of course, we're neither happy nor really morons, but we're pretending to be that way. And so when, when Lou and I, and now poor Tracy Alexis, who's still not even in the field yet, she's still a student, um, rail against this. And Lou says, if you look at what, people are, what happens to people that messes them up, families. Then you look at the family that messes the child up, and you realize that the parents were themselves messed up. Lou has a book. Uh, 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 I'm looking at it. Wait a second. I want to look at it, because when I get excited, I, my mind goes completely blank. Uh, what's the title of the book about black sheep now, Lou? Healing the Hurting Soul. Yes, Healing the Hurting Soul. Well, you know, the, and it's the finding out that you're the black sheep in the family. Well, you look at the people who make the black sheep. They themselves were the black sheep. Uh, you, what I say, Larry, is that the, the person in the family who most needs my help is not the one in my office. Right. And I'll say that the people who need the most help are the people who run the country and the people who are making the big money because you can't ex separate them. And so when you try to change the myth of mental illness and you try to get the drug companies not to give these drugs, which turned down, turned people into kind of robots and turned them into into something that that is normalized to use your word. When in fact we're living in a crazy situation, the whole situation we're living in. I mean, I listen to some of these senators 
I listen to uh, uh, what's going on in the Senate. I'm looking at Obama trying to put through some change in, 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 in uh, care, you know, or change the fact that we're greenhousing ourselves to death. And you look at what's being said, you say, hey, wait a second. Are the people we see in our offices crazy? Well, or Larry, are the people running the show crazy? Larry, and how do you separate that? We're also involved in a pretense. We, I'll just speak for psychology, although it's certainly true for psychiatry as well. We're involved in a pretense, and the pretense is that we have learned something in 125 years, uh, more than, say, Shakespeare, um, and that we have answers for people, and that is a blatant lie. Yes, um, I agree with you. We, we pretend... Uh, uh, my, my, my favorite people, and th this is the group with which I was raised, uh, the Applied Behavior Analysts, uh, or the Behavior Modifiers, if you want to call them that, they, th their latest target is autism. But here's the problem, and, and, and Tom Sass brought this up marvelously well in his latest book called Psychiatry, The Science of Lies. Um, he, he, uh, he talks about a, an English jurist of the 17th century called John Selden. And John Selden made the remark along these lines, I don't remember the exact words, but along these lines, that it is, it is pointless to try and understand the whys and wherefores of something before you understand whether or not this thing really exists. Yeah. Now my point here, and then I'll shut up, at least for a minute, is that we don't even know what autism is. But along come the applied behavior analysts, and they treat it like it's a behavior of uh, not taking out the garbage. Uh, of, of a seven-year-old or something like that. Uh, we don't know what autism is. What makes those people think that, uh, that uh, imposing contingencies, reinforcing or punishing on the behaviors of autism is going to make any difference? It's like the Willie Prater syndrome. The Willie Prater syndrome is a genetically based metabolic disease which, uh, whose, whose primary symptom is gluttony. And if you've ever known one of these people, um, they are usually mildly retarded, and you have to lock up all the food in the house because they'll eat everything that they can get their hands on. They, right. they, uh, they, they, uh, they don't eat feces or anything like that. They only eat food, but they'll eat it all, and this is why they're usually grossly overweight. Now, would, would an applied behavior analyst try to impose contingencies on eating for a person with Prader-Willi syndrome? Well, yes, they would. Yes, they would, because they don't think enough. They're not careful enough about what are we dealing with. And that's also true of alcoholism, <laughs> mental illness generally. Point. I'm sorry you're missing the point. But it wouldn't cure the disease. There is no disease. What you have is unwanted behavior by someone, usually the family, usually the school, usually the community. And the job is not to understand the behavior. The pretext of mental illness, the pretext of all of these labels, is to apply enough force to the individual, whether it's physical, chemical, or whatever, to shut them down and stop them from misbehaving. I agree. That's the job. We're part of the, you know, when I realized this when I was at my clinic, all right, parents would hit their kids. Most parents discipline their kids. A lot of parents, anyway, especially the working class people I used to work with at the clinic, worked uh, up discipline their kids using force. They would spank them. And by the way, most of the time, I, did, would, I could disagree with that, but they didn't really hurt these kids. We're not talking about beating children so that they, their lives were in danger. They whacked them on the ass, or they, you know, they slapped them, or they did something that I don't think they should do because it takes away someone's dignity. But they weren't really, really hurting them. We now... They passed a law in New York State that this was abuse. And we had to report these people to social services. So a mother comes in. This is a true story. She comes in to one of the people I'm supervising. And she tells her, I hit my child. I get very angry. I'm afraid of how angry. I want to work on that. And the, work, the social worker reports her because the law says she had to report the abuse. I thought I was going to pull the top of my head off. I said to her, don't you realize you just betrayed a patient? Well, she couldn't understand that. She said, but I can now get in trouble. And I realized that, that as time was went by, unless you were in private practice and all of your stuff was completely private, I mean, you had total confidentiality, you weren't working for the patient. You were working for someone else. 
So all of these psychiatrists and psychologists are working for the drug companies. They're working for the political system. You don't have to understand. One of the best articles I ever read was by an analyst many, many years ago. I don't even remember his name. And he talked about the mystery-mastery complex. Keep something in a mystery and master it. Yeah, Tom has written extensively on that, too. Huh? Yeah, that, but that's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And when you try to change the family, you're on the first step of trying to change. And you're now in danger, and you're putting the individual in danger. You saw what happened. I, 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 well, I don't want to talk about this publicly on the air. When somebody criticizes one of the icons of our culture and someone you know, they come down, they start to threaten that you're going to lose, they're going to sue you. <laughs> well, maybe we ought to talk a little bit about that without mentioning names and places. Sure. Um, all right. Let, let Tracy, Tracy could talk about I'm that. Gonna, I'm going to have Tracy come in because she was the she, – she caught most of the, uh, most of the flack because – uh, I thought it would be a good exercise for her as a doctoral candidate to write a review of a book. Go ahead, Tracy. And so I wrote the review of the book, and Larry, I think you even got a copy of the review. Yes, I did. I read it. It was nicely written. Thank you very much. And we sent a copy of the book review to the author, who was incredulous that we never got to the nuggets of what it was of the cogent information she was trying to illuminate everyone with. And... Um, Anyway, we sent, the, we sent the book review off for consideration of publication to a, a known uh, psychology publishing company, and uh, it was returned uh, along with uh, some information from a very close friend of the book's author that uh, was very damning of me that I would uh, target a woman who was 85 years old and had blazed trails in the field of psychology and she was an icon, and how could I have given her such a poor review, and on and on and on. And um, it, it just was extremely intimidating for me, as well as I felt that I hadn't really stepped on anyone's toes. I was being very forthright and honest with my assessment of the book and, and my review. And by the way, Dr. Wen co-authored the book review with me, so I really wasn't out there flying solo on my own. Um, and she sent an email, you know, well, you need to go back to Chapter 8 and look at what I'm talking about. And we kind of chuckled between ourselves going, why would someone wait eight chapters to give you the cogent information you're seeking? But the, the, the punchline, Larry, and everybody listening, the punchline was the editor, the journal editor, made the remark that we don't want to publish reviews that are critical we only want to publish reviews that are complimentary. Right. And that is what really stung me. I was infuriated. Yeah. I mean, well, not only that, it, it, as, just, as a scientist and as a person who, who supposedly seeks the truth, you're being told we don't want the truth if it's negative. But, but this is the happy moron thesis that I'm talking about. We don't want to upset anybody. I once had a book turned down. But I can mention it was Springer Publishers, major publisher of scientific stuff and the reviewer said this is one of the it was cutting edge theory absolute cutting edge theory. i was so thrilled and they turned the book down and i said why it's because this review is going to upset many of our readers i said but your readers are supposed to be scientists and they turned the book down i, I went to another pub finally found another publisher who published it uh, a publisher who was at the time prometheus who said we publish stuff like at the bagel, at the edge and in the center, where there's nothing. <laughs> so we publish that kind of stuff, because you couldn't get this into, into, uh, into regular mainstream journals or, or mainstream publishing. They don't want to upset anybody. They don't want to get upset. They don't want to be sued. And that's ultimately where your, your problem was. You finally were threatened with a lawsuit, weren't you, Tracy? Yes, I was, and, and that's the intellectual dishonesty to which we're referring today. Yes. That, and it is ubiquitous, Larry. It's not just in psychology and psychiatry. It's everywhere. Look at Bernie Madoff. That's intellectual dishonesty, scamming people and taking uh, what they've worked their entire lives to amass for retirement and scamming it from them is intellectual dishonesty. Well, I'm going to tell you that a lot of the people who were scammed knew they were being scammed because they went along with something that... Anybody with an IQ of over 100 should know couldn't possibly happen. 
Well, I agree. I mean, you know, there's a grief When factor. somebody tells you they're going to give you 25% forever, you don't even ask, how does this money make 25% when the rest of the market is either making 6 or 7% or 8% or losing money? They're caught up in something. And they're caught up in this myth and they're caught up. And I, well, I mean, I'm very close to despair. Not just, and, and not for me. I'm 69 years old. Uh, I, I'm developing all kinds of stupid medical problems. Uh, I have to have my knees replaced probably next month or the month after. I'm hobbling around like, like an old fart. Um, and and I, it's for my children and my grandchildren because the pressure to, to say stupid things, to laugh at bad jokes, never go anywhere near anything critical because we're afraid to hurt someone's feelings. Not that if you attack them, but if you simply say, I disagree with you. I mean, they're teaching kids in school. That's not polite. Yeah, yeah. but it's necessary in the adult world to know that as a skill, that it's okay to disagree or not see things the way someone else sees it, but you don't have to lose respect for that individual, which right. is... But what, now, this is, this, is, this is taken as a loss of respect. I used to have students by the time I retired who would say to me, that's your opinion. I remember once I got involved with a student in a discussion uh, about, uh, I was talking about that uh, explorer that was sending a, a, a plate out into the universe. Yes. And the basis of the, of the communication on the plate is that one and one is two. And they show you that one and one is two. And I said, wherever intelligent life would be, one and one would be two. Not necessarily the words one and one, but the concept. One and one has to be two. It's a truth. You want to come to a truth? One and one is two. One planet and one planet is two planets. And one student stood up and said, that's your opinion. And, you know, so, there is an answer for that. And, I was flabbergasted. I was flabbergasted. Do you know that more and more of the students, as this went on, I tried very patiently to show her, is that she, she, that was the mindset of most of my students. This is your opinion. There is no truth. There is only a set of opinions. Yes. And the opinions are guided by whoever has the power to make the opinion. Who well, has the money? Who has the power? And I think that brings us back really to religion and politics. And you yes. had touched on that earlier. And control, how those things work hand in hand to control the masses. And here's where we come in with medicating the masses. As Dr. Wynn will tell you, and I will agree, most common people, most working class people, get their information off of the television. So what saturates television today? Who's, who's in, uh, who has the money to pay for advertisements? It's what? Pharmaceutical companies. When you turn large on corporations. Large corporations. They corporations own. and pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. You know, we'll go back to your happy moron. I call it chemical lobotomy. You know, yes. get everyone medicated. They'll all be happy. They won't care what happens or, or the decisions we make running the country and because they're all chemically lobotomized. So we'll put them on happy drugs, and everyone's happy. And we're especially happy because we're making tons of money off of them getting their prescriptions filled every month. And by the way, they can't come off of these drugs real quickly because if they do, they're going to want to kill themselves. Well, it's a tremendous withdrawal problem. I mean, the lying that goes on about these drugs, uh, terrible, terrible. I mean, most of these drugs uh, are, are tremendously dangerous. Um, and, and, and I don't have to tell you, folks, that they're now medicating or drugging. It's not medicating. Medication. Penicillin for strep throat is a medication. Right. Uh, you know, taking an unhappy child or a child who's supposedly hyperactive and drugging him so he sits quietly in his chair in school doesn't cause any problems. This is, look what you would say, chemical lobotomy. Or a kid of mine I worked with years ago said to me, when I asked him, how does it feel to be on these drugs? He says, handcuffs in a bottle, Dr. Simon. Mm -hmm. I kissed him. I said, that is one of the best expressions I've ever heard. It's exactly what it is. It's handcuffs in a bottle. And he was a pain in the ass, this kid. Uh, of course... To go along with, with what you're saying, Lou, about you know the background, the father used to chase the kid around the house with a stick, screaming, "When I get you, you useless bag of shit, I'm going to beat you to death." Well, but, those 
No, Larry, those things do happen in all fairness. I had a somebody in my office the other day, just last week, who told me that uh, he that his mother once took his head and broke a car window with it. Now, those things do happen. Yes, they're all the time. And those are the types of behaviors that really should be reported to social and welfare services. And they do, and they get reported. Right. And they take the parent, and they take the family, and they break the family apart. Yes. And the mother is now diagnosed as bipolar or, or, or schizophrenic or something, and she's drugged. And the kid is a now post-traumatic stress disorder. Although I have to talk, can I talk for a second about post-traumatic stress disorder? Mm. That, this, that of all the, the, the two diagnoses that make me completely crazy are um, uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and the uh, uh, oh god the one they use on women. You know, I, I'm really having one senior moment after another. PMS. Uh, no, no, no. That's oh, that's the one that's, after birth. Huh? The one after birth when they give children. Postpartum um, depression. No. Yeah. Uh, the as-if personality. Borderline. Oh, oh borderline. Borderline. Okay. borderline personality. Most of the people diagnosed as a borderline personality disorder are women. And if you look at the women who are diagnosed, they have been sexually and physically abused. Mm -hmm. right? We used to talk about physical sexual abuse of women and say we're going to outlaw this. We're going to make the world a better place, particularly for women. You don't hear about it anymore. You know why you don't hear about it, Larry? Because women are fearful of speaking up. As soon as women speak up about that, then all of a sudden they're placed before their accusers, right. and uh, they're told that it's because of the the fact that they wore something provocative that created this unwanted behavior, this, right. this set of unwanted behavior. So what's the point in speaking up? That's but that's short, shut them down. When they go to the therapist, the therapist says, "Trust me." And, of course, somebody who's been abused by men is not going to trust. Why should you trust your therapist? You trust The therapist should earn your trust, not be told you trust me. Well, you don't trust them. So you miss appointments, you do all kinds of stuff, and, and, and you, you undermine him because there's a power control issue always going on with people who are helpless. They're trying to gain some kind of power back in a relationship. That's always ignored. And then you end up saying, well, she's a borderline. But the one that gets me even more than that is post-traumatic stress disorder. It's a Our military is sent into every military. When you go into war, you go into hell. No one who ever fought in a war, who killed or was saw buddies killed or was attacked and wounded, comes back the same. How could you come back the same? So true. By having your house robbed. It's like being a woman who's raped. Get over it! I love the expression, suck it up. You know, Larry, our, our uh, country has really done a huge disservice to our, our military veterans. Oh, it's horrible. They've undermined the military. I will tell you that my, my father actually served in the Korean War, and he developed pernicious anemia from K-rations and could not walk. He was paralyzed from the waist down. And uh, I remember going to see him in the VA hospital. They were rehabilitating him to literally weave baskets. And my dad said, they said, well, they told him, Mr. Alexis, you will never walk again. And he said, you know what? I don't care if I never walk again. I have served my country. You will take me to physical therapy until the day that I either, A, walk out of here, or, B, die trying. My father walked out of that hospital. Good for him. But you know Good what? Today, if a veteran goes into the VA hospital and says, you owe me, I've served my country, they label them as mentally ill, and That's they prescribe right. the medication to subdue their unwanted behavior. Absolutely. And to do this to, to, to our soldiers, not only is a terrible, terrible betrayal of what you ask them to do, but yes. it's to undermine the entire military. Yes, because we all know that freedom is not free. There are sacrifices being made even as we air the show uh, that are un untold of. You know, lives are being sacrificed for our freedom. Yes, yes. Uh, our call, other call. I'm sorry, the other call. What's your name? Tony. Tony. Did yeah. you wanted to say something about that? Um, you actually, I was on the last point that you guys were talking about. You guys were talking about uh, the, the uh, way we're medicating people and, and just labeling them based on uh, societal behaviors. And I wanted to uh, get off the line maybe and just listen into the show after I make this point. Uh, it's a kind of on a personal note because I'm not a professional. You, you all seem to be professionals and. I'm just an amateur listening in. But uh, when I was a child, they uh, 
I went to a, a private school, and uh, we were expected to be very disciplined and uh, raise our hand and ask questions. And they quit calling on me after uh, about sixth grade. They didn't like my questions, I guess. And uh, I just began to blurt things out. So they put me on ADD. Uh, you know, that was my right. diagnosis. And they put me on uh, Ritalin. And I was on it for the better part of a year and a half. And then I just secretly quit taking it without my mother knowing or anything because she was gone by the time I had to get up and take my pills and go to school. Right. So I was able to kind of like just flush them down the toilet and get away with it. And she didn't notice until I told her. And then once I told her, she agreed with me that I could stay off of it. The, the whole thing years later came to me to, as a realization that they just didn't want to hear my questions. My That's questions right. were too hard for them and too politically unsound for them to want to answer. So the easier thing to do was to correct my outbursts as opposed to dealing with the fact that they were refusing to deal with my questions. Yes. Yes. And That's right. That's what ADHD is. Uh, we know that the, some of the brightest children around are the ones who are labeled ADHD. You put 30 kids in a room with an overworked teacher who has to have them pass the FCATs or whatever those exams are, because uh, they're, they're unifying the curriculum everywhere. You know, the, 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 the art is gone, the music is gone. It's, it's all, you know, let's, we have to, <laughs> oh, never mind. And, 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 and uh, what the kids that can't function in that setting are automatically a danger, and they are a danger to the, to the stability and the organization of the class. Because they question authority. Yes, and you can't question authority, so you have to be shut down. And we have powerful, powerful stuff to shut kids down. Absolutely. And, Larry, they, the problem with shutting them down with this powerful, powerful stuff is that with any new medication, the long-term effects, there are no longitudinal studies to tell us what the long-term effects are. And good for you, Tony, that you were able to get off your Ritalin because one of the long-term effects of that is it turns you into a cocaine addict. So I'm very happy for you that you didn't have to stay on it longer than a year or a year and a half. Yeah, well, but thank Tony, you guys for doing the show. I appreciate but Tony, it. Tony, you learned to show. shut up, didn't you, Tony? <laughs> I did learn to shut lot, up. But right? Yeah, I did learn to shut up uh, in, in social standards. Um, you right. know, but but uh, yeah, I still blurt stuff out, I guess, but usually I try to refrain from it. But, uh, yeah, I, when, once you get out of that setting where people aren't uh, um, refusing to hear you, you're, you actually have a voice, like as an adult, you know, once you're out of the school setting that – the uh, real work world where people are, are more open to hear your ideas, there's no reason to blurt things out anymore. Yes, I know. And if you find a, a group of people like that, and that's why uh, my relationship with uh, uh, Lou and a very small number of other people, hold on one second, I have to talk for one second to my wife. <laughs> Hello, I'm sorry. Hey. Uh, I have call waiting. And somebody is trying to call me, probably about a bridge game tonight. <laughs> and they keep, they keep, and I don't want, I'm not going to answer. Have a, they have a medication for that, Larry, you know. <laughs> they have a medication for everything. For, for, for playing bridge, yeah, and for tennis, too. They, to hey, come listen, directly I have to a the... lovely bottle of Merlot that I open after. <laughs> drinking that stuff? That's my medication, baby. <laughs> don't mix that with Ritalin. <laughs> no, 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 no. Ritalin, that, that's speed. Yes. 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 Speed. Yeah. Yeah, we, so, we, as a nation, I'm not sure that we were ever particularly uh, tolerant of uh, diverse points of view, but we have become increasingly, uh, I, certainly in, uh, throughout the 20th century, you become become very intolerant of positions outside the mainstream. You're, uh, Larry, I, you and I are old enough to remember the Red Menace, and and McCarthyism was one. I, one example of, of how our nation is very intolerant of, of, uh, of diverse viewpoints. And behaviors. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I agree. And, and I think it's, it's only getting worse. Um, I see more and more uniformity and more and more just what I would call, it's my judgment, stupidity. Well, it's, it's also that the, 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 the political left with their political correctness is actually the disease of which it should be the cure. Yes. Oh, sure. The, 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 left, the left is the mirror image of the right. Mm -hmm. It's the well, mirror image. It's just as, uh, as anti-intellectual. I mean, I'll tell you a story. A city college, city university is a hotbed of, of again, my wife, she's a feminist. 
I support that. I, liber- I don't think the world can be saved unless women become the equals of men in every single way. You know, we used to be the superiors of men in every single way. When was that? Before religion. There was a time before religion, Tracy? Absolutely. Before the Moors, women, everything was maternal. Women really? owned all the property. Women, men served at women's pleasure and leisure. And uh, when we died, everything was handed off to our daughters. Larry, I should interject. You know that because uh, we, we uh, uh, Tracy and I, who who are out here in the Southwest, live uh, shoulder to shoulder with the American Indians, right. and they are very, very matriarchal in their in their um, yes, yes, you're right. Organizations. Yeah. The, yeah. the women own the property. Go ahead. And and likewise, when when those uh, matriarchs die, the property and all of their worldly possessions pass down to the female heirs. What is the sex of their gods? Uh, you know, I honestly do not know, but I, I do think that they're uh, both genders. I bet you they are, because see here, God is a man. Uh, in, in, in Christianity, God had a son. I mean, wouldn't have a daughter. Yeah. Even in Judaism. Uh, I, got a, I got more than one rabbi upset over the years when I asked them, why did uh, um, Abraham, why did God ask Abraham to uh, kill his son, Isaac? Why didn't he go to Sarah and say, take one of your daughters and sacrifice a daughter? And they look at you like, what are you saying? You're not allowed to say that. But I said, well, no, no, why not? Why, why is it that, uh, that it's all totally a man's story? It's a totally male-dominated story. Completely, you know, God has a man. God uh, uh, talks to men. Um, yeah, it's, it's a tremendous problem, terrible problem. Um, and I don't think you can, until you have real equality, political equality and economic equality between people, I don't think anything's going to change. And that's why I really feel that um, our field, uh, no matter how long it goes on, it doesn't really... I think, it's, Larry, I think, I think clinical psychology is dead. I think, dead. I think I within, within 10 years, maybe even less... I think we will stop pretending that there is such a, a field called clinical psychology. They're already calling it neuroscience. I mean, we yeah. don't even call it psychology. We call it neuroscience, whatever the hell that is. Yeah. Are they still going and getting doctorates in clinical psychology? Uh, well, you're a little closer to the, that field well, than I'm I am. Well, I'm not closer to anything. I'm really outside. I mean, I went to NYU, which had probably, when I went there, it was the number one clinical program. Uh, you know, they taught us research even before they taught us the, the, the yeah. diagnosis, etc. It was the science. Sure, I'm sure they do, but they they don't clinical psychology the way you were taught it or the way I was taught it. Yeah, but it's still it's still occurring. It Most does. major universities offer clinical psych degrees. Now, I can't imagine anybody getting a degree in that. How do you earn a living in it now? I mean, you're you're, you're up against. You prescribe, yeah, you you make sure that you're qualified. You take all the courses in, you know, the phony genetics. We haven't even talked about genetics, but that's yeah, well, another another big lie uh, that uh, that we have helped. We being in the behavioral sciences have perpetrated on the public, and that is that so much of behavior that we that is unwanted uh, is genetically based. The truth of the matter is, none of it is genetically based. Yeah, no, no, it's not. Yeah, there's no proof that anything has. Uh, any, or, or again, the same guy who said to me what I, I quoted before, Happy Moron, he said, the day we understand the genetic source of, of uh, schizophrenia, we'll understand the genetic source of becoming a psychiatrist. <laughs> well, and probably the genetic source of an ingrown toenail. Yeah, well, no, the, the, you are who you are, and I don't think that genes play anything less than 100% of a role in determining what you are except that it's the sum total of your experiences given your genetic inheritance, not just the gene. Genes don't operate outside of, of a system of environmental stimulation, of environmental conditions. Exactly. I mean, even, even the earliest, when the blastula forms, you know, the little ball, if you take material from inside the uh, blastula and put it on the outside, of the blastula while it's in the, in, in the, in the uh, uterus. In the embryonic stage. And then put what? In the embryonic stage. Yeah, in the embryonic stage. And then take stuff from the outside and put it inside. It develops exactly what it's supposed to inside and outside. So yeah. the, the stuff outside becomes the legs, the arms, the head. 
And even if you remove material from the inside, the genetic material, and put it on the outside, it still becomes the head, the leg, the arms. Yeah. So it's not just in the gene. No, Larry, we, we want to believe, in a, uh, we being Americans, and maybe people generally, we want to believe uh, that, that chemistry has the answer to our problems. Of course. And that genetics, and that, that genetics uh, has the answer. Of uh, course. We're, we're, of we're having a rebirth of eugenics in the United States, yeah. the creation of a master race. We, we, we were only a little bit behind the Germans during World War II, yeah. except that whereas the Germans picked on the Jews for their experimentation, uh, we picked on uh, African Americans for our experiment. We were doing exactly the same things in the United States as the Germans were doing, and I know it's going to get me in a lot of trouble for saying it, but at my age, what can they do to me? They'll, they'll test your genes and give you a pill. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they'll label them crazy. Yeah. Well, you, uh, listen, you and I have been labeled crazy by some of the best people around. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's true. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, what I went through at my clinic and what I went through at the college, um, I mean, at one point, the, I, I was, this is one of the things that finally I said, I'm retiring from the school. Well, it wasn't, I was going to retire anyway, but it was the, the, the nail in the coffin of my career there is that they took away my abnormal psychology course because the nursing department uh, went to my chair and said, if he's not stopped from teaching that Zas stuff, and, and it, all his criticism of the field to our nursing students who have to go through a psychiatric nurse's rotation, we're going to block your appointments. We're going to try to stop your uh, people from getting tenure and being promoted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he came to me and he said, you have to shut up. And I said, I will not. This is the, what I see is truth. I said, I have to teach. This is what, in, this is what academic freedom is about. And when I came and got my schedule that spring, uh, that I, I ended up retiring, uh, I didn't have a course in, in, in uh, abnormal psychology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, had seen, I was the senior professor. I was the most published person in the department. And they took away my course from me. He said, I have to protect the rest of my people. And that's intellectual dishonesty. Oh, it's total dishonesty. Total dishonesty. Absolutely. I mean, I was absolutely enraged because he was supposed to be my friend, and he used to give all kinds of lectures on how we're going to, you know, truth, justice in the American way. Uh, and, and then I found out that there were clinical psychologists in the department going to students and telling them, don't take abnormal psychology with Simon. He's psychotic. <laughs> He's crazy. Mm-hmm. And the people in the clinic couldn't figure out my diagnosis. I had, I had behavioral problems. I had authority problems. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. I, was, I, was, I was psychotic. I was neurotic. I was, oh, it was endless. It was terrible. Yeah. It was absolutely terrible. Um, you know, they, they couldn't really hurt me because I was too published and I was too well-known in the field. But it was a terribly unhappy situation. And I could see if you're a young person coming into the field, when, when, when they come down on you this way, you either shut up or you lose your job. Mm -hmm. You do. So I don't know what the answer is, although I know that uh, the three of us will continue to become be curmudgeons and fight for the rest of our lives because, you know, you don't feel you have a, a real uh, choice in this, do you? Well, it's not a question of answers. No, it's the it's like you have to keep speaking out. You have to, otherwise, otherwise you die inside. You really do. You die inside. The best part of you is put to sleep. And Larry, I'd I'd like to circle back and talk about the politics and the economy that uh, yeah. you touched upon earlier, and tie it back into more to medicine than to religion. Um, I don't think we've approached this too deeply today, and that is that. Um, Pharmaceutical companies and psychiatrists and psychologists have a lot at stake yes. in making money. You know, we're all it, we're a capitalist society, so it's very important for us to make money. And many people define themselves by how much money they make annually. Right. And it's a sad state, really, of our economy when when we do allow one another to define themselves by by a monetary means. But one of the things we've really not talked about is how much money is at stake. And and I'll just back up a little bit and say when psychiatrists
speak, have speaking engagements, um, they get a stipend for that. Who pays right. that stipend? I think it's important that we look at that. Also, um, you know, Dr. Wynn had talked earlier about asking the question, why? Uh, when, when psychologists and psychiatrists aren't asking why someone is behaving the way they're behaving and they're just slapping a mental illness label on them and writing them a prescription and getting them out the door, they're, they're basically churning patients in and out, in and out, in and out. They're no longer taking time to peel back the layers of that unwanted behavior to find out why is this person sitting in my office? What is bothering them to the extent that they seek professional help? Right. And unfortunately, we've gotten away from that in, in, the, in both of those professions. We've gotten away from asking that question and trying to find the answers to it. It is much more profitable and uh, uh, beneficial for a professional to get you in, listen to you for about five minutes, sum up what they think is going on with you, diagnose you with some type of a label, write you a prescription, get you out, get the next patient in. There's yes. billing that goes to the insurance company for that. There's there's money. Um, there's possibly kickbacks or certainly um, um, what do they call it now, swag that comes from companies who are promoting specific drugs for treating right. these unwanted behaviors. Right. And this all ties into the economy. Right. Uh, it's very advantageous for psychologists and psychiatrists to label someone, write them a prescription, get them out, get the next person in. And Crazy. it's really a, oh, go, ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry. It's really a sad, uh, that, that, that's the sum total of what a life is worth anymore. Well, is, first of all, look at, the, look at it on a much more practical basis. You know, I agree with you about capital. Um, I'm sorry, a, you cut out for a moment. You agree with me about what? About capitalism and, and the way, you know, to be successful in our society, you have to make money. Uh, it's defined almost entirely in terms of your income. But on a practical level, you, you have to pay a mortgage and car payments and, and support a family. I have a, uh, my wife's cousin is a psychiatrist, and uh, I'm very close with him. I, I care very much for him. He uh, lives in Florida. In fact, he just bought a house in my community. He has a job, the only job he could find as a psychiatrist, where he is expected to see four patients an hour. Four? That's very low. Four patients an hour. So he saw yesterday, I mean, we went out for dinner, and he could hardly keep his eyes open. He saw 32 patients. And he sees his job because he's a decent guy. Uh, he wants to do psychotherapy, but you understand that's completely impossible under those circumstances. Right. Sure. He now sees his job as to reduce the medication of all the people he sees because they're all on Respidol and, and Zyprexa. And he says to them, I want you to look at the patients in the hall who are 600 pounds and are dying of, of, of high uh, cholesterol and blood sugar and are so stupid that they can't even say their name anymore unless you allow me to get you off these drugs and reduce your medication or get you off the medication entirely, that's what you're going to become. Okay? That's what he sees his job as. The Larry, most, most physicians... Why they behave as they behave. How many people can you see? And by the way, the paperwork has to be done. He prays for people not to come. He prays for missed appointments, so he has time to do the paperwork. But Larry, most... most uh... Uh, physicians, uh, general physicians in, in, in group practices are, are asked to see six or eight clients an hour. Yes. I see a real niche uh, opportunity for a psychologist or psychiatrist who actually wants to take time to get to know what's yeah. bothering a patient. He's going to do that in private practice. He's going to have to work up a private practice. To work in a clinic and private practice is extremely difficult at this point because the insurance companies won't pay for psychotherapy. They only pay for psychopharmacology. Right. Talk to me about it, Larry. <laughs> well, you know, I'm about to, I'm hopefully about to get licensed here in Florida, and I want to do some work. Uh, God only knows what kind of work I want to do, but I want to, you know, I want to be a psychologist again. Uh, I have a friend who, who works in the nursing homes. Mm -hmm. and he does some decent work there, and he makes some decent amount of money. Um, so probably that goes on there. What goes on there with Haldol and Risperdal yeah. will turn your... He's able to see, he has, he's in a nursing home where he's able to talk to the psychiatrist 
uh, and get him to look at least at the amount of drugs he's giving these individuals and reduce it or, or be cognizant that these side effects, what they're called side effects, are not side effects. They're the direct effects of the drug. Exactly. Yeah, that's, a, you know, that's a great word, side effect. You know, it something. is. And, and what's egregious is the drugging takes place for patients who are age two years old to age yes. 102 years old. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a society built on drugs. It's a society, as Tom Zass says, it's, it's, it's a medical society. Everything is medicine. Everything is a, med- a problem to be handled. Yes. But, but his, 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 let's, let's plug, to their cure. Let's plug uh, Tom's book, Pharmacracy. It's not a democracy. <laughs> it's a pharmacracy. Yes, that's a great book. And by the way, uh, under your recommendation, I read his book about uh, uh, drugs. That we should all be given, give, We should all take whatever drugs we want. There shouldn't be any gatekeepers for that. Mm-hmm. That book. It's also a fabulous book. Science of Lies. No, 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 no. This is particularly about. Uh, I know which one you're talking about. He, you know, he's only written about forty books, Larry. I know. <laughs> I know, but I, I, that was an absolutely wonderful book. Uh, we don't, he, as he puts it, we don't shouldn't legalize drugs. It should be like alcohol. You want heroin, you want cocaine. You go into a store, you buy the stuff, and let the buyer beware. Um, and and uh, cause, and you want a drug, you should know from the government exactly what's in the drug and what the side effects are, and you want to use it, you go use it. Well, there's there's a big problem there too because our government doesn't know, you know. And I'm not a treasonist; I don't want it to sound like I am. But uh, our government doesn't know that the organization that's been put into place to monitor the drugging uh, industry is not. They're understaffed, and they can't possibly stay on top of all of that. Right, and and we sort of have to finish, but Tracy, let me tell you the Simon Mental Health Test for government. Okay. It's a single true-false question. Okay. I want to be in government. If you answer true, we lock you up and treat you till you get over it. The most dangerous people in the world want to be president and governor. People who want that kind of power have to be treated as scary. So how's that for treason? Yeah. Yeah. Good, Larry. I don't Larry. trust any of them. I don't trust any of them. Uh, anyway, I have to hang. Um, I have to barbecue some lamb chops for supper, have a glass of wine, go play some cards, and uh, get myself out of the depression. That, <laughs> that you always get into when you talk to me, right? Well, no, no. Hey, listen, I'm, I depress everybody if I try to talk about what's going on. And that's part of the problem. Nobody wants to be depressed. Nobody wants to be made unhappy. So, and, and the problems are so difficult, even to put into words, that more and more people just are sticking their head in the sand or sticking their head up their ass uh, or taking drugs or drinking. or, or I, I mean, the conversations, you know, you can't have a conversation, a serious conversation where I live unless it's one-on-one with somebody who, who you, you, you sort of feel your way in, they feel their way into you. Otherwise, it's let's play canasta or do this or do that. Uh, that that's meaningless. That passes the time comfortably. Uh, it's really a, a very sad and scary thing to me. I, I don't I don't see any intellectual life except that there's a women's group that has a book club, and they read very good books, and they have some really intelligent discussions, and they won't let me in because I'm a man. <laughs> Wear a dress. <laughs> Wear a dress and a wig. You'll pass. Yeah, no, they know they know who I am. Larry, thank anyway, you. thank you for coming on. Thank you. And uh, I, I I agree with you, Lou. The field will be dead in ten years if it's well. Actually, it's dead. Just doesn't know it. Yeah, it's yeah. It's gone. It's gone. It, it's it's something that uh, and and that's sad because uh, I've argued for a long time that it could have been a great force for science, for uh, democracy, for individual development. And uh, as many good people are in it, they're just eaten alive. Mm-hmm. You have to fight and fight and fight, and and, and you continue fighting because what else are you going to do? Yeah. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks. Good luck to you, Tracy. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Larry. Same here. And maybe we'll do this again soon, soon sometime. Okay. Great. All right. Thank you. Take care. All right. And uh, everybody, I will not be on the air probably for the next uh, month. Uh, I'm going up to uh, visit my kids up in uh, up north. And uh, I'm going to take off probably the next four weeks from the show. And uh, 
probably in September come back. Okay? Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Hello and Tracy. Bye. And Tony, goodbye. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.